This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org slash manliness for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, most marriage and relationship advice books focus on solving problems, but my guests say argue that we shouldn't wait until problems arise in a relationship to work on strengthening it. Instead, they say, when times are good, we should think about how to keep that good and act to make it even better. Their names are James Powelski and Susan Pelleggi Powelski, and their husband and wife. James has a background in philosophy, and they both have backgrounds in psychology. They combined insights from both fields to write the book Happy Together, using the science of positive psychology to build love that lasts. We begin our conversation discussing how most relationship advice falls short, the biggest myths people have about relationships, and the contrast between Plato's and Aristotle's approach to relationships. We then dig into the role emotions play in a relationship, particularly passion, and what we can do to continue to cultivate and experience positive emotions in a marriage even after being together for years. We then dig into how our character influences our relationships and how our relationships influence our character. And James and Susan share insights on how and why to focus on our strengths, help our partners develop their strengths, and even go on a strengths date together. We end our conversation talking about the power of appreciation in relationships. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash happy together. James and Susan, join me now via clearcast.io. All right, James Pawelski, Susan Pelleggi Pawelski, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. It's great to be here. Thank you. We're excited to talk with you today. So you two are a married couple who have written a book about relationships, which can be, which can be a test of relationships. Like you've had to put this stuff into practice. It's called Happy Together, Using the Science of Positive Psychology to Build Love That Lasts. So now there's a lot of relationship books out there. How's this one different from the other ones? Well, it focuses on what can go right in a relationship instead of what can go wrong. And it's based on the science of positive psychology, which studies what makes individuals and communities thrive. There's so many books out there on relationships, but they tend to focus on fixing problems. We're focusing on what are those nuggets of goodness and how can we nurture them to improve our relationships? Let's do a contrast first. As you all have looked at the material out there on relationships, what are some of the biggest myths that you've encountered that people have? when it comes to developing a positive, flourishing relationship? I feel that in our culture, we focus so much more on the wedding rather than the marriage. So much more on getting married or getting together rather than being together and how to stay happy together. There's pressure on men and women, you know, to find that perfect person, which we don't believe exists. And there's so much attention on that, you know, through dating apps and dating and so forth. But once you get together and eventually make a commitment or get married, we feel that then there's no focus really out there in culture. And what really happens in a marriage? And after the storybook ends, what if we really had part two, part three, you know, of a fairy tale and really saw this couple and their daily, um, you know, their days together? what is involved? And I feel like nobody talks about that. What are the best practices that can help couples uh, be happier together? 
we just have this cultural myth of, you know, prince and princess charming, and there's one magical person that's going to forever complete you. And we feel that that does a great disservice to relationships. Relationships actually take work and it's healthy habits uh, that are important. Happily ever after doesn't just happen magically. Yeah, I agree. I um, I think there are two kind of closely connected myths uh, here. One of them is the myth of the soulmate. Now, if by soulmate, you know, soulmate can mean a lot of different things. And if by soulmate, we mean, you know, being deeply connected to somebody, we don't have any problem at all with that word. Obviously, we would advocate that. But sometimes the notion of soulmate takes on this kind of mythical, magical, you know, I'm only half a person until I meet my soulmates. And this meeting is nothing I can really prepare for. It's just kind of sometimes happens. And then there I am, I'm, I'm in this relationship. And then, so the first part of the myth is kind of, you know, this is a fated magical thing. And then the second part of the myth is when it happens, uh, as Susie said, it's just happily ever after you're just, you're good to go. You're, you're fine. Everything is going to work out really beautifully. And again, we think that that's problematic in part because it takes away the emphasis on what we can do to help to prepare for that. So in other aspects of our lives, think about, you know, our, our professional lives, like you don't just imagine that suddenly out of the blue, somebody is going to offer you a career without you having prepared for it. And we also don't imagine that we're going to be able to keep our jobs if we don't work hard at learning, you know, new skills and, and continuing to, um, to develop ourselves in that regard. So why do we think about relationships in that way? There's a lot that we can do to prepare ourselves for finding a good partner. And then once we've found that good partner, there's a lot that we can do and need to do to continue to develop the relationship. So this is where that intersection of psychology and philosophy happens. So that idea of that there's some person out there that completes you, that comes from Plato, talks about that in his dialogue, the symposium, right? Where there's like, right, there's two halves. Yeah, that's right. I'll yeah. let the philosopher answer here. <laughs> I can comment on it, but I, I, he has a big smile on his face that you're talking philosophy. <laughs> yeah. So that idea of, you know, that the, the other half I mean, is a very funny um, story that Plato tells. It puts in the character of a, uh, of a playwright in one of his dialogues. Um, and the, the story goes that um, back in the day, we were all round, actually. Human beings had four arms and four legs. And if we were in a hurry, we'd kind of do cartwheels and uh, really go fast uh, to get where we needed to go. But we were so full of ourselves that we rebelled against the gods. And so Zeus realized he had to do something to stop this rebellion. And so he cut us in half. So each person now is a half a person. And so we now only have two arms and two legs. And But but then what happened was that um, this, this Zeus's supposed solution kind of backfired on him because people became so sad and lonely, longing for their other half. And so we would do nothing but go around looking for our other half. And when we found our other half, we would embrace that person and forget to eat. We wouldn't offer sacrifices to Zeus and it just didn't work out very well. So that's part of that myth that um, is, you know, obviously in, 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 in not just in our culture, that there's this other person that all we have to do is to find that person and then we'll, you know, automatically live happily ever after. Zeus made some adjustments um, in his uh, 
in his approach and found a way to uh, get us to be able to eat again and to offer sacrifices to Zeus. But, Brett, he threatened that if human beings became rebellious again, he would cut us a half in half again, and then we'd have to go hopping around on one foot and with uh, with just one arm. So we do need to be uh, humble as we move forward in our lives. Right. So let's talk about another philosopher that you go to that positive psychology looks to a lot. It's a student of Plato. It's Aristotle. And Aristotle had a different idea about relationships. And he wrote a lot about uh, not only friendship, but also marriage. So what does an Aristotelian relationship marriage look like? Well, so to answer that question, I think we probably ought to tell you about our honeymoon, if that's okay with you, Brad. Is this the kind of program where we can talk about honeymoons? <laughs> sure. We can talk about it. As long as you don't bring out the slideshow, <laughs> I think we're good. Yeah. Our uh, Instagram so, Susie, feed. Why don't you uh, start us off? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were talking about um, how far back in the honeymoon should I talk about just our conversation on the beach. So we were sitting on the beach uh, talking about Aristotle, because I guess that's what one talks about on one's honeymoon, right? Um, if you're married to a philosopher, it is. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so we were talking about uh, Aristotle and the Nicomachean Ethics, which is, you know, one of the most important books on uh, the good life. And we we're discussing Aristotelian friendship. And Aristotle talks about how we love things that are good. We love, th- or love things that are pleasurable, things that are useful, and things that are, that are good. And he says there's a friendship that corresponds to each level. So we are discussing this and he says how friendships of pleasure, you know, it might be two people going out on the town partying together, nothing wrong with that. There's pleasure, there's relationships of, of friendships of usefulness. Maybe they're two business partners investing money. And then finally, he says there's friendships of goodness. And he says that's the highest level of friendship. While there's nothing wrong with the first two, we can imagine that if, you know, there's no more pleasure left in the friendship, friendship often falls apart. And likewise, if the business opportunity, maybe, you know, you lose money, you're no longer interacting with that uh, person. However, he says on friendships of goodness, unless the one of the person's character goes awry, they're much more sustainable because you really see the goodness in one another. So we're sitting on the beach talking about this, having those little, you know, drinks with umbrellas. And I said to James, that's really cool what Aristotle says, but why does he limit this to friendship? What if we took it up a notch and we really applied it to our marriage? And hopefully we'll have some pleasure throughout our marriage, especially on our honeymoon. And definitely, you know, some usefulness. We both bring different skills to the relationship. But what if we ultimately do our best to focus on one another's character and the individual strengths we have? and help each other to work on developing those strengths so that we can become better individuals and better as a couple. And he said, I love that idea. So we see, yeah, I can let the philosopher hop in if you want. So we talk about this notion of Aristotelian love, where again, you're not ignoring, hopefully you have some pleasure and usefulness, that's important. But if that's all you have in your uh, marriage, that's likely not sustainable. So we talk to couples about focusing on really the goodness, the strengths in your partner and in yourself. And what can you do as individuals to develop those strengths and help facilitate those strengths in your partner? And that's where we look to positive psychology, to the robust research in using science-based findings on how to become Aristotelian lovers. Yeah, and a couple of points of clarification as well. So 
a lot of people come to relationships looking what, for what they can get out of them. But this is an approach where we go into relationships looking to what we can put into them and supporting our partner in this regard. Now, if I, if I came into the relationship with Susie and I said, now, Susie, I'm all for you becoming a better person. So I have a 13 point plan for you to become a better person. And I'm going to help you through that plan. That probably would not work out so well. There's a big difference between coming into the relationship with a plan for the other person versus coming into the relationship with a plan to support with the, with the point of supporting that other person in their quest to become a better person. That doesn't mean we can't talk about things and I can provide feedback. I can ask Susie for feedback about how I can become a better person, but it's not me who is the catalyst for her growth. It's her, it's she who is the catalyst for her growth. And it's my role to help support that as best I can. So this, uh, you, you give a, uh, use an example from film kind of highlighting this idea of Aristotelian relationship. So there's the, the platonic idea of relationship where you, there's a soulmate out there. There's Jerry Maguire, right? Who says, you complete me to That's Renee right. Zellweger. And then there's the other movie, As Good As It Gets, with Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson. And there's that famous scene where Jack Nicholson is like, you make me want to be a better man, awkwardly, because he's mm. this awkward guy. But he captures yeah. what you're going for there with the Aristotelian yeah. Uh, relationship exactly it's one of my favorite movies and we know from watching the movie he's not a perfect guy as we said we don't believe in the notion of perfection you know he comes to her with all his flaws and so forth but he sees the goodness in helen hunt's character and it's that goodness he sees that really inspires him to want to become better and we know from positive psychology research things like inspiration this is the work of uh, jonathan Haidt. When you're inspired or in awe, there's physiological changes going on in your body. So your heart actually expands and you're moved to action. When you witness virtue, you want to do something good in response. It's contagious. So in this film, when he says, you make me want to be a better man, she's not making him be it. He's inspired by her. So it's this, you know, self-directed action, as James mentioned, you don't come with a plan to change your partner. The research shows it's interdependence that leads to fulfilling relationships. We don't want to be completely independent and nor do we want to be dependent, which often this sense of soulmates can lead to, but rather interdependent. So it's not focusing on your partner completing you, but rather complimenting you. Well, and, um, you know, we, I know we've been kind of dogging on Plato a bit, but, you know, that idea, Plato in the symposium talks about, that whole point of it was that love towards a person can be what inspires you to the good, right? So it's like a ladder that takes you. So you, you, you fall in love with the person, they inspire you, and that sort of somehow draws you to the good in its platonic form. And the same thing's going on there. It's like you see someone who inspires you, makes you want to be a better person and helps you become a more virtuous person in the process. Yeah, that's exactly right. We can, you know, just the other thing that comes to my mind is like an elementary school teacher, right? You can be inspired by that person or even sometimes develop a crush on your teacher and that motivates you to want to learn. And so there is this kind of a drawing, not a pushing, but a kind of a pulling and inviting kind of thing. And we can get really inspired, as Susie said, when we see someone, see their character and we say, wow, that's just a, that's a really, 
that's that's an example of goodness uh, in, instantiated. And then that can really um, inspire us and, and be a great basis for love. And I imagine it helps when two people come together in a relationship where they have that idea of that common idea of living the good life. Like they, there's something higher that they're both achieving. It's not just about like, okay, you're married, you know, getting married to you is going to help me in my career because you're going to be able to watch the kids and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's something bigger than that that allows you to experience that Aristotelian relationship. Definitely. I think making it like a marital uh, mission statement, that's what we did on our honeymoon. And so like, really, what do we want our marriage to be about? And I think especially during you know, tough times, trying times, going back to that and saying, what's the ultimate goal? So if you're both working towards something, you know, becoming better and becoming a stronger team and doing good out there in the world, then I think it helps keep your focus on that. And instead of getting stuck on the day-to-day sort of, you know, annoyances and so forth. So we've been talking very high level. Let's get uh, start getting nitty gritty here. So the first half of your book seems to focus on managing the emotions in a relationship because Aristotle talks a lot about that. For him, emotions aren't bad. He's not like a stoic where you got to like be like eliminate all you know bad emotions. But he says that you need to manage them so they're useful and can help you lead to that flourishing life. In the first part of the book, you talk about passion. And when we typically think of romantic relationships, we think of passion, but you guys argue that there's good passion and there's bad passion or unhealthy passion. Talk about those two. Sure. So again, getting back to pop culture, since we like to talk about pop culture, we feel that so much of the uh, focus out there that people grow up with of passion is an unhealthy passion. It's that feeling swept away. I can't live without you, you know, whether it's greeting cards or movies or music it's this, you know, you're my one and only, you complete me. I don't know what I'm going to do without you. And while it may feel good in the moment, the research shows that this all-consuming urge or desire where you can't stand on your own two feet is actually a form of obsession, what they call um, obsessive passion. And again, let me just say that in the beginning of a relationship, of course, you're likely to feel that this way and it's, you know, romantic love. But if months, years into the relationship, you still can't focus on what's going on at work or you're no longer seeing your friends, your personality's completely changed. Um, you might not be so much in love, but rather more obsessed with the other person. The good news is that there's also a healthy form of passion. And this is with uh, Bob Valorin's research. It's called a harmonious passion. And this is the passion where you love your partner. You may do things together often, but also on your own. You're still maintaining your interests, the activities that you did before your relationship. You're still seeing your friends, your personalities the same. And I think a lot of people kind of confuse the two because if they're, if they feel, you know, years into the relationship, I'm no longer feeling that, you know, all consuming sense. Maybe it's the wrong person. Maybe I should uh, leave this uh, relationship or marriage and find somebody else. And we've interviewed a lot of people, you know, when we were uh, putting together this book who were sort of, I'd say, obsessed with obsession that from one relationship to the next, as soon as those high arousal emotions sort of calm down into more companion feelings of love, they thought that there was something wrong. And I think a lot of this is because we 
often have these myths as we discussed in the beginning, what a healthy relationship is. So infatuation in the beginning of a relationship, it's healthy, it draws a couple closer together, but then it has to shift to something else. It doesn't mean that it there's no passion, no erotic passion. I think a lot of people like the beginning of the relationship. And I think to your point about the idea of a healthy passion is you do things together that you both enjoy and you enjoy being together, but also maintaining a distinct part of your life. Like that can actually help that sort of erotic passion, right? Because like it, that's all about, it's all about desiring and desiring requires like an otherness, right? Like you, you don't completely know the person. So by having, you know, separate lives that you have your own thing can actually encourage that sort of passion that we, we like at the beginning of a relationship. Yeah, yeah definitely. A- oh, sorry, James. Go, no, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, they talk about new and novel activities, I mean, we know in general from research doing the same thing, whether it's in a relationship at work or elsewhere, you know, there's monotony, boredom, you fall into a rut. So it's important to always be proactive, novel activities. How can you do things differently and keeping the spark alive? And to your point, Brett, keeping those activities and interests, it's likely what, you know, attracted your partner to you. And likewise, all too often we get together with our partner and we feel that we have to be, you know, at his or her back and call and we may give up some of those activities and interests and uh, the research shows and experience shows that that's not healthy. We should continue being who we are and maintaining uh, those hobbies outside of our relationship as well, as long as they're healthy ones, of course. Yeah, that's extremely important. Uh, Maybe a metaphor here can be helpful too. If you think about what it takes to light a campfire, you know, you want, you want to have kindling, you want to have some dry leaves, uh, maybe some small sticks and light that on fire. And man, does it go up quickly. But if that's all you have, then it's going to go out pretty quickly. And I think that's what a lot of people experience in their relationships. It's like this immediate spark and excitement, enthusiasm, and then it kind of peters out. So what you need to do in a campfire is you need to have some bigger sticks and some logs there to catch on fire. And so that when that initial energy is there with the kindling starting up, it's then also heating up the logs and catching them on fire. Now, when a log is caught on fire, it doesn't immediately go up in these, you know, flames and uh, all, all that passion in that sense, but it, it's a longer burn. And part of what then can happen, first of all, it's more sustainable, but then with that longer burn, that then allows for an opportunity for those flare-ups to happen from time to time. Right. And so maybe some more leaves get piled on and then suddenly it, 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 um, there's that spark again. So as Susie was saying, those new experiences can be a kind of rekindling from time to time. Not that we're expecting to live in that moment of conflagration all the time, that fiery passion all the time. That's not necess- that's not healthy for human beings. But to have those on occasion within the context of this longer, sustainable uh, relationship is what we're at, what we're looking for. All right, so so one way to enc- to encourage or uh, promote that healthy passion: do novel things together. Don't just get in a rut. Any other things that people can do to develop that healthy passion? Sharing something like a secret with your partner that you never told him or her. Um, we think, unfortunately, when we get in a relationship and may maybe together for a number of years, uh, that we know everything about our partner, and I think that does a lot of harm to the relationship, being curious and sharing. I mean, we don't know everything there is about ourselves. This is actually something my philosopher husband would say, right, James? We never know ourselves completely. How can we know the other person? And maybe it's a childhood memory or a fantasy you had or 
you know, a line of work that you've always wanted to do. But I think having these conversations about ideas and sharing parts of yourself uh, with your partner regularly so that you're continuing to grow together and learn more about one another on a deeper level can keep the relationship from uh, just being on the surface and getting into routines. So uh, we talked about passion. Another aspect you talk about with emotions is fostering positive emotions in a relationship. And as you said earlier, most relationship books are about mitigating the negative emotions, right? So it's like if your couple's fighting, here's some things not to fight about. If a couple's not doing this, here's what you do. So why? what can we do to foster positive emotions within a relationship? In the beginning of relationship, it seems like we have so many positive emotions, right? And a lot of people, I think, just fall back thinking about, you know, how joyous they felt or excited or, you know, how much passion, and which, you know, it's great to have a lot of those emotions. But I think, first of all, is realizing that just like uh, ha- happily ever after doesn't just happen, positive emotions don't just happen. In the beginning of relationship, you're going to have a higher frequency. It's just, you know, it's just what happens and the intensity and the newness of the relationship. But that doesn't mean there's nothing you can do. The research shows we have to practice positive emotions and prioritize them in our lives, which basically means people, individuals and couples who plan their day by organizing activities for themselves as well as, you know, with their partner will experience more positive emotions than those who just wait around for them to happen. So for example, take time to reflect. What is it for you and for your partner together? Because it might be different, you know, to the individual than to the couple. What are those activities that really bring you joy, that make you feel good or make you feel peaceful? And then schedule them into your day. Like for me, I have to get outside every day. I like to do a long outdoor run. So is that something individually I do for myself, I'm going to feel better. I'm going to have more positive emotions. And then it's going to be, we know positivity is contagious. I'm going to be in a good mood. It's going to help James be in a good mood. But what are those activities too together that we can do that both people enjoy? And how can we schedule them into our day? And I think it's also important to note that there are many, many positive emotions. Barbara Fredrickson research shows that there's like at least 10 that we frequent on, you know, pretty much in our lives. But unfortunately, people just focus on the, I think, especially in America, the high arousal positive emotions, like those you have in the beginning of a relationship. But it's important to know that there's a whole range of emotions. And as the relationship develops, it's actually the calmer emotions that are associated with uh, long-term love. So in the beginning, it might be, you know, the high arousal emotion of, you know, a sense of ebullience, curiosity, which is great in interest. And then as the relationship matures, gratitude. I'm so thankful this person's in my life and I'm in, I'm in all of him and I feel a sense of serenity you know, the bonding, the cuddle hormone, they talk about oxytocin when that's released. It actually brings the relationship to a more peaceful level and a more mature level. So look at all of these uh, positive emotions and figure out activities in your life that you can do together to bring more positive emotions into your relationship. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. It is summertime. You know what that means. The living's easy, but also it's time to enjoy the weather, spend some time at the pool and let loose. 
but not too loose. And that's where Saks' Cannonball Swim comes in. Big fan of Saks Underwear. We've talked about it on the podcast before, and they've got a new swim short out with their patented ballpark pouch. Get ready for the most comfortable summer ever in and out of the pool because Saks' Cannonball Swim Shorts will keep you chafe-free against sand, salt water, and sunscreen. They also got quick dry pockets and a breathable mesh liner. Shorts are fantastic. Been using them in my pool. Ballpark pouch, game changer, no matter what, where it's on. Also, I like about the short, it dries really fast. So when you get out of the pool, you're not bringing in water into the house after you get out. The color also doesn't fade, and they're also odor-resistant. So I know you're going to love these shorts. I wanted you to try them out, and I got a limited-time deal for my listeners. You can get $5 off and free shipping on your first purchase when you use promo code AO at checkout. So go to SaxUnderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X, Underwear.com. Use promo code AOM at checkout. Get a pair of the Cannonball Swim. Get $5 off and free shipping. So one more time, SaxUnderwear.com, promo code AOM. Also by Indochino. So whenever we had style guys on the podcast... They always say every man should have at least one suit in their wardrobe, because you're going to wear this to weddings, job interviews, funerals, or just an event where you got to wear a suit. Now you go to the department store, buy something off the rack and you can tailor it, but there's certain parts of that suit you're not going to be able to tailor because it's made off the rack. It's already been made. So you got to go custom made to measure, but you're probably thinking, Brett, that's going to cost thousands of dollars. Not so with Indochino. At Indochino.com, you can get a custom made to measure suit for about the same price you'd pay for an off the rack department store suit. Here's how it works. I did this with a navy blue suit that I have, but it's been heavy rotation this spring and summer. You go to Indochino.com, you pick out how you want your suit to look. So how the lapels, the pockets look on the jacket, whether you want pleats, no pleats, cuffs, no cuffs on the pants, pick the color. And then you follow this measuring guide. It's a video guide. You get your measurements in, you send them to Indochino.com. And in a couple of weeks, you have a custom made to measure suit sent directly to your door. Process super easy. You can do it online or you can visit one of their 40 showrooms in North America and have your measurements taken there. So if you'd like to try this out, I got an offer for you. My listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $369 at Indochino.com when entering manliness at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit and $369, about the price you'd pay for an off-the-rack department suit. Also, shipping's free. Again, that's Indochino.com promo code manliness to get any premium suit for just $369 and free shipping. Go check it out today, Indochino.com promo code manliness. And now back to the show. I think it was, you talk about research from John Gottman where he says like, it's, it, you know, couples that fight or argue, like that's not what predicts whether a marriage breaks up that that's part of a healthy marriage. What predicts it, if there's no like positive interactions that they have after that or during the day, so that there's something that counterbalances that. I think he has like a ratio. It's like five to one. So like five, you need to have five positive encounters with the, with the uh, person in your relationship to, for every one negative one. Yeah. And so uh, we heard, uh, we invited John and Julie Gottman to come and speak in our master of applied positive psychology program a few years ago. And they were talking about that and they clarified that's actually for couples, healthy couples when they're fighting. Okay. So imagine having a fight and during that fight, there's a five to one ratio of positive to negative. They said that in, in regular experiences with those couples, it's more like 20 to one. Uh, so I think we all have some, uh, some work to do to make sure that those ratios are, are, are maintained. And, and also with their work and with other Shelley Gable's work, there was always so much focus in the past before these researchers showing the fixing problems, as we mentioned, which of course is important. But the research shows it's more important to celebrate the good times and focus on what's going well. And we think a lot of couples, you know, miss those opportunities. You know, good things happen to us at a much greater frequency. But unfortunately, it's, you know, that toothache or, you know, that cut on your leg that you're noticing. You're not noticing those days that, 
you're enjoying great health or the sun shining or your partner's extra nice. And unfortunately, we often take those things for granted. And sadly, a lot more couples fall apart and, you know, break up or get divorced, it seems, because of feeling not being appreciated and not being acknowledged. So yeah, we have a tendency to focus on the negative and ignore the good. And so because of that, you can be in a relationship where you think everything's actually might be better than you think, but because you're focusing on the negative, you think, oh, my marriage is terrible. But one way to counteract that is savoring, which is, I mean, we think of savoring eating food, but what does that savoring look like in a relationship? Yeah. So Susie mentioned that in, that early on in a relationship, it seems like all these positive emotions are just kind of there. And we think, oh, the rest of life is going to be exactly this way. And, you know, you, you kind of have to get back to work and things happen and the relationship matures. And it's not quite that initial kindling conflagration that we had at the beginning. And so that's one reason why it's important to cultivate positive emotions by doing things, for example, that can evoke them. It's also important to to focus on remembering the things that have gone well. And so reliving old times can be a great way of of reconnecting and, and, and savoring. We all have these amazing memories that we're carrying around with us all the time. We just typically don't access them. And so we may, you know, be having a bad day. We're like, oh, this is terrible. Life is miserable. But man, there's a lot just waiting to be discovered or rediscovered in those memories. Also, savoring can be about the present, just being present in the moment and soaking up what's there. Again, we tend to, in our relational lives, in our work lives, just our lives in general, we tend to say, oh, well, you know, I can go, I can go into work and talk with my colleagues about what a miserable weekend I had or how awful the traffic was getting into work and make these stories long and so forth. But what about spending some time talking with them about things that are really going well in one's life, in the work life and so forth. So, so having that, again, having that kind of a balance, being open when things are, you know, when there's a moment of connection, don't hurry through it, be there and allow it to, to unfold and be open to it. And then about the future, it's possible to have anticipatory savoring. So uh, my wife Susie and I are right now, we're, pl- we're planning, uh, preparing for a trip uh, to Australia in a few weeks. And so thinking about what we're likely to encounter there, what people we'll meet, what experiences we might have, that can be a source of joy as we anticipate what might happen. Now, it's important to distinguish between expectation and anticipatory savoring. So if I say, okay, Susie, here is what our first day in Australia is going to look like. We're going to go to, you know, a place where we can see the kangaroos. We're going to take our son to a soccer match. We have it all planned out. It's exactly how it has to happen. Uh, We all know how life goes. It doesn't necessarily happen as we, you know, as, as we expect. And so if I'm really committed to it having to happen that way for me to be happy, that can be a problem. But if I anticipate, we plan, and then whatever happens that day, if it turns out to be such a rainy day that the kangaroos are undercover, well, there are other things that we can do to enjoy the day. And that allows us to be flexible, even while anticipating good things in the future. All right. So we've talked about emotions, uh, developing healthy passion and encouraging more positive emotions in our relationship. Let's talk about the other part of an Aristotelian relationship, which is character. So positive psychology talks a lot about character. How, do, how does, in the world of positive psychology, how do, how do they define character? Sure. So 
In brief, uh, positive psychology, I'm going to give you a very brief uh, summary of the research. So in brief, uh, positive psychologists looked across cultures and time, and they found that there are 24 strengths that are ubiquitous. So think that everybody has in different uh, dimensions, things like love, leadership, gratitude, zest. So there's 24 of these strengths. And we all have them, is the good news. We have them in different configurations. And these strengths, along with our backgrounds, our personalities, our upbringing, makes us unique from one another. And people can find out what their strengths are. Their top five strengths are called your signature strengths. So, Brett, this is something that is just naturally makes you you. Like maybe you're just naturally creative and a leader. So it's not about skill. It's not about intellect. But it's those inherent qualities that we all have. And most people, when they take the strengths test, you know, they agree with it. They're like, yeah, that's, that's just who I am, right? So listeners can actually find out their top strengths if they go to our website at buildhappytogether.com. And it's, it's a free test, the VIA test. It takes about 10 minutes. So, okay, you know what your top strengths are. Now what? So the research shows that by practicing your strengths on a daily basis, you know, in your relationship, in your leisure activities, at work, is associated with greater individual well-being. And when it comes to a relationship, using your strengths together as a team and help facilitating strength use in your partner leads to a greater relational satisfaction and better sexual satisfaction. So why not help your partner facilitate his or her strengths? The problem is, it seems, in the beginning in a relationship, often it's those strengths of our partner that attracted us maybe to him. So James, can I just give a personal example? Sure. (laughs) Okay. So anybody who knows my husband or anybody who really knows him, he really, really loves to learn. Like Brett, I love to learn, but nowhere near to the level that James does. So when I met him, I was intrigued. He was one person who had a lot more books than I did in my apartment. I was like, wow. And I was blown away. And I used to, you know, finger through the books and look at them. Years later into our relationship, I'm like, really? You're buying another book? Like, how many more books do we need in our house? We have no room for anything but books. And then I would start getting annoyed, thinking he's like trying to irritate me by coming home with, you know, 20 more books. And I think it's interesting because what initially intrigued us often sometimes annoys us because we're not looking at the relationship through a length of strengths. We're thinking maybe our partner is intentionally trying to annoy us. Instead, remembering, wait a minute, I fell in love with this guy partially because of who he is and how much he loved to learn. So how can we look back and say, oh, you know, my partner, it's his love of learning that is having him, you know, behave in this way. That's who he is and accept him rather than change him. And if I can piggyback on that, that's great, Susie. Um, The going back to Aristotle and of course have to bring Aristotle in here. It's been a while since we've uh, said much about him. So what he said is that character comes from habits. And so what we want to do in our lives is not just make the right choice in a particular situation, but be the kind of person who habitually makes the right choice. So it's not just, Oh, I found a wallet with a hundred dollars in it. I'm, what should I do? Hmm, should I keep it? Should I, uh, okay, I'll, I'll return it. But we're the kind of person who you find a wallet with a hundred dollars and it's not even a question. You're immediately looking for who this person belongs, uh, who, who the money belongs to so you can return the wallet. So thinking about character, thinking about these character strengths as 
habits in our lives? And how can we be aware of what habits we have that are uh, helpful, that are conducive to good relationships? And what habits that have snuck into our lives that really aren't? And what can we do to disrupt those unhelpful habits and to cultivate and support the the good habits? And so these character strengths are, it's a, it's a great list, a, a great classification of a lot of really good kinds of habits that we can develop and have in our lives and in our relationships. Now, as Susie said, there, when, when we're in the context of a relationship, sometimes we can overuse these strengths or underuse these strengths. And so it's a matter of, you know, as Aristotle says, it's easy to uh, become angry, but it's hard to become angry in the right occasion, to the right degree, with the right person, and so on. So we need to be careful about as we get more experienced about knowing, recognizing what our signature strengths are, how we can use them in the context of of the relationship in a way that will be optimally effective and helpful. And like, what does that look like, right? So, I mean, I I can see how understanding your strengths and your partner's strengths, I mean, intuitively uh, would be useful in a relationship, but like, what is that like? Can you give us an example of that playing out in a relationship? Sure. So we first suggest to couples to take a strengths test, or if they don't, they could just, you know, intuitively, uh, either know or, well, I shouldn't say intuitively, no, ask their partner, you know, what their strength. So even if James didn't take a test, he'd say, well, I really love to learn. And I might say, you know, I love being adventurous. I'm very zestful. And then having the first part is having strengths conversations. I think, again, in the beginning of relationship, we're so curious about one another. You know, we have marathon conversations. We're talking all the time. Shortly afterwards, it seems like we fall into rut. We think we know all there is about our partner, but we don't. So having something called a strengths conversation is where you specifically discuss each other's strengths and you go deeper than just saying, oh, I love to learn. I might ask James, well, how did your love of learning really lead you to become a philosopher and a minor? I think he had, what, six minors? What is it about the strength of yours that not only led you down a certain career path, but maybe turned down opportunities? Maybe he doesn't want to do certain things because he feels like he's not learning. And going really deeper with that. And he would ask me similar conversations. You know, how can you use your zest better? Like, where do you get a sense of joy uh, using that strength? Might we go on a hiking trip and we can explore and, uh, you know, be in nature more? How could you use your sense of creativity more? So it's having those conversations and having them all the time because our strengths aren't set like it is like a blood type at certain points of your life. I mean, there's nothing magical about the first five. They call them your signature strengths, but maybe a, a strength that's a little lower might move higher up, you know, later in your life. So there might be a certain time where you're going through an experience and maybe you never really considered yourself a really brave person, but maybe you didn't really have an opportunity to use your sense of bravery. So you might be going through a challenge and, you know, suddenly it's something like bravery you're practicing. I think it's important to have these discussions because we're multifaceted about the complexities of our nature to really understand each other. And then I was going to say also, so the strengths conversations is one thing, sitting down with your partner regularly. It's not like, okay, I had my strengths conversation. I'm talking about these things instead of just talking about, you know, uh, the superficial And then next, we would suggest that all couples go on a strength state. And a strength state is where you choose one of your strengths and one of your partners, and together you create a date or an outing 
where you both have the opportunity to use that strength. So one fun example of ours, for instance, since I'm talking about James's love of learning and my zest, we got together and we were like, okay, what can we do with love of learning and zest? So we decided to rent um, Segways and we did a historical tour of Philadelphia where we live. And it was really, really fun. We have pictures <laughs> we could send to you. We were zipping around the neighborhood. I had more fun on the zipping around part. I was listening to the historical part because I like to learn too, but not to the degree that James does. But Brett, I got to tell you, we had such a fun time and I think it was one of our best dates, James is smiling, but I don't want to speak for you. No, it was a lot um, of fun. You know, at the end of the date, we talked about it. My sense of adventure was fulfilled and his sense of lo- uh, his love of learning was peaked. But we, we can't just stop there. There's thousands of, I forget how many combinations he said of, of strengths, right? Uh, thousands, James? A whole lot. Or maybe more than thousands. Yeah. But maybe we could take, um, we both have a top strength of creativity. What's something we can do creative together? Or imagine if we talked to couples, one who had kindness and one had humor. What's something funny you can do and kind? And they went and they did something with um, a homeless shelter in the neighborhood. And so there's just many different things. And the research shows, as I mentioned previously, when you use your strengths, you have greater individual well-being. And when couples do it together, they have... um, a greater uh, connection, physical as well as sexual and emotional connection, because it's really showing that you get this other person and you're helping him or her bring their uh, best self to the table and, you know, their authentic self, not what you want them to be, but who they are, rather than dragging your partner, you know, on a date to something that, you know, he's he or she's really not interested in. Let me just add one, uh, it's great, Susan, let me just add, piggyback one thing. Let's say that my love of learning, I was overusing that love of learning and spending all of my time with my nose in books. And Susie <laughs> and my son Liam felt neglected because I wasn't even noticing them because I was so eager to learn. Well, one way in which strengths can work, it's not, we're not just advocating, well, sorry, that's my strength. So that's what I'm doing. Good point. But I could actually use my strengths in a way to shore up my weaknesses, as Marty Seligman suggests, or I can use my strengths in a way to uh, help the relationship by, for example, learning more about Susie or learning more about relationships. And so the strength itself can become a vehicle for me developing other parts of myself that are important in the context of a relationship. That's a really great point. So it's not bringing a book to our son, uh, Liam's soccer championship, but maybe James delving deeper into soccer history or son's a real uh, lover of soccer and learning about the sport. Right. So, so it's not, so, okay, that's a good point about weaknesses. So we all have these strengths in various forms that some of them are stronger than others. I think a typical approach when people say, I've got this weak spot, I got to devote all my time building that up. So if like, you're not a thoughtful person, I think it's one of the social intelligence, right? Kindness is one of those strengths. Kind of sure. goes that. Like you don't like make it a habit. Okay. I'm going to be like, I'm going to do one thoughtful thing a day. Like, cause that can be counterproductive, right? Yeah. Instead you find like, you find a strength that you have that you can, that you can focus on, lean into more that allow you to be thoughtful naturally. Would that be a good way to say it? Yeah. So think of it in terms of, you know, baseball, we're just talking about a sports analogy. Think about baseball and think about a pitcher. Now, at least in the major leagues, perhaps the greatest weakness that a pitcher has tends to be batting. 
And so if a pitcher said, boy, I really got this weakness of batting. I need to practice batting. And they stopped practicing their pitching so that they could practice their batting. What would happen? I mean, maybe they would become a marginally better batter. They probably are not going to become a champion batter. But in the meantime, they're going to lose the skill for which they're valued and for which they have a spot on the roster, right? So that would be an example of, you know, in that context, you rely on, you know, you want to be as good of a hitter as you reasonably can, but you rely on your teammates to help pick up the hitting and you're focusing on the pitching. Now, if it turns out that you say, well, you know, I'm just not a kind person <laughs> and that's my weakness. So I'm not going to work on kindness. Well, no, we, we all need to be at least somewhat kind. So there are, so, so th- again, this isn't an excuse for just being, you know, a terrible person and saying, well, that, that, that's not my, that's not my strength. But if a pitcher is so good at pitching, then that can overcome from a team perspective, that can overcome the deficit that might arise when their batting average isn't that high. And then, so that's one way of thinking about it. But then, as I mentioned with love of learning, there are times when the strength itself can also help you in your, so let's say kindness, right? So let's say I'm just, I've been getting some feedback that I'm not as kind as I need to be. Well, then how can I use my love of learning or a strength of love or a strength of gratitude, whatever strengths that I have, how can I use that to find out more about this lesser strength or this area of weakness that I have and work on that? Because it's a lot more fun to use our strengths than it is to be like, okay, great. Now I got to work on my weakness again. Right. And so another way you can use your strengths to shore up your weaknesses, say that love of learning kindness example, say you're not, you know, typically kind or thoughtful, but you can like lean into your love of learning. So if you see your wife having a problem, you can do some research. Hey, I want to, I'm going to research this problem for you. Here's some possible things. So you're, you're using your love of learning to Excellent. be thoughtful. Excellent. Love it. Yep. All right. Yeah. Does that all the time. <laughs> but yeah, again, you, you have to use like. He's also very kind. But, but you got But, but again, kind. you have to like as uh, James said, you got to use that Aristotelian phronesis, right? That practical wisdom. Right. Like you could right. probably do like do that all the time, but sometimes it might not be what you really want. Susie, it's like, that's kind of annoying at this time. I didn't want, <laughs> I didn't want a, a portfolio, like a presentation of my problem. I just wanted you to listen. So you got to, you got to use some practical wisdom. I mean, I was taught the golden rule is all you need, you know, to be happy together, treat others as you want to be treated. And then after we got married and realized that wasn't the case. So then we talk about the notion of, you know, while the golden rule, it's good intentions, it's good to start with, it's limited. And so then we think, well, what about the platinum rule? That's when you treat others the way they want to be treated. Well, that's good to a point, but if... I just want to eat chocolate all day and drink wine. It's probably not the best for my health. So we like to talk about the notion of the Aristotelian role. And that's where you treat others as their best self would want us to treat them. And it can help give us important guidance. So James knows I like to be athletic. Um, I like to take care of my health. So while I love chocolate and I love wine, and he definitely gives me them regularly, But I think if he saw I was eating boxes of chocolates and drinking bottle of wine, you know, he might dissuade that. So how can couples really know one another, learn to know one another by discussing their strengths, having those strengths conversations and the work on a regular basis? 
the Aristotelian role of treating those, treating one another as their best self would want them to be treated. So that's helping uh, create opportunities where they can use their strengths and know their strengths, not me um, telling James what to do based on my strengths, but noticing his strengths, creating opportunities for him as individual and together as a couple. And I think it's important um, to focus on the individual part too. So one of the best things James did to me for me was give me the space to spend time by myself. So I used to live in New York City for years before we got married and I had a business meeting there. And he said, why don't you stay a night? And he goes, why don't you stay two nights? Then I think it was up to three. Then I thought he was up to something. And I got to tell you, (laughs) having quality time in my old stomping ground with my friends who I spent years with and being away from him and my son, having some downtime was really nice. And it actually made me really appreciate them even more. And I think I ended up coming back sooner because I wanted to be with them. So this notion that you mentioned earlier, you know, time apart or, you know, creating that spark in a relationship by doing your own thing and, you know, help your partner um, helping you uh, facilitate doing things you love, I think can bring you closer together. I think people often think they just need to physically always be together all the time. Another way you can foster those strengths in your your partner, your wife, or your husband is expressing gratitude for those things, which you have a whole chapter about gratitude. Yeah, gratitude. It's so important. Uh, research shows that not only is it important for individual well-being, but it's extremely important for relational well-being. And in fact, it may be the most important. It's an emotion and it's also a strength. And when it comes to relationships, we can understand why, because if our partner's not uh, feeling grateful to us, then, you know, that's, it doesn't bode well for the relationship. And in fact, research shows it's not enough, Brett, just to feel grateful. We have to express our gratitude. Our partners aren't mind readers. How can we express gratitude to our partner in a way that is good for the relationship? Well, there's a few things we can do. We can just start with telling our partner, thank you. And focusing on his or her strengths. So if James were to do something for me, or let's just say, to make it simple, he gave me, I don't know, a a hat because my head was cold, just to really simplify it. And he gave me an orange hat because orange is my favorite color. And I just said, oh, thank you so much for the hat. I love orange and I love the hat. I mean, that's fine. It's better thanking him than not thanking him at all. But how much better is it if I were to say, James, thank you so much for your kindness and really noticing, um, you know, I'm always cold when I run outside. Uh, you've listened to me, how, you know, the heat escapes my head and your thoughtfulness. I really appreciate that. And it's the same thoughtfulness I see in you that you express um, towards our son or towards your students. So it's focusing on James's strengths and his actions rather than just the benefit to me. And it's also important to be authentic. I mean, you don't want to overdo it. Of course, but I think a lots of times, A, we don't express gratitude. We just assume our partner knows. And then when we do, we just, you know, bring it back to ourselves. And then our partner feels like, may end up feeling like it's a relationship, as we discussed, of utility. One of Aristotle's, you know, friendships that he talked about that, well, James is just doing things for me all the time. And he may just feel like, you know, a commodity in the relationship rather than 
being appreciated for who he is. Did you want to say something, James, about gratitude? No, I think that's, okay. I think you said it really well. Um, and th- those uh, elements of gratitude can, you know, it's, it's, gratitude is also a way of focusing the attention. So talking earlier about Aristotle's connection between habit and character, one of the ways of establishing habit is by focusing our attention in certain ways. And so having a practice of gratitude can really help us remember and uh, remind ourselves and each other about the the good things that are happening in, in, in the relationship. So as I was reading you know, this whole book, uh, there's a practice that my wife and I started a couple years ago that mm. basically does all knocks all these things out that we've been talking about all, all, all during this whole entire podcast. It came from a marriage counselor, Marsha Berger, who has this idea of a marriage meeting where you get together with your spouse once a week for 30 minutes and she breaks it up. We do this, we do this like we try to do it once a week. Sometimes we don't because things are busy. But like the first half, the first part you you do appreciation. So you express gratitude to your spouse for things that happened during that week. And you do it in that way that you guys talked about. It's like, well, you're so thoughtful because of this, this, thank you, that. Then you talk about the to-dos, which is like the utility part of any relationship. Uh, then you plan for good times as a family, as a couple, individually. So it's all about fostering that healthy passion. And then you talk about uh, problems and challenges. And it, it literally takes 20 minutes, but it's been a game changer. It, it really fantastic. does. It's in, improved our, our, our marriage. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds wonderful. And having a kind of habit, a kind of practice of doing that is is really great. Let me point out one other thing about uh, gratitude that I think is really important. And Susie mentioned expressing gratitude and expressing it in that other kind of focused way. It's also important how we receive gratitude from the other person. So we like to talk about it in terms of a gratitude dance. So if you invite your partner to dance... And the partner says, eh, no thanks. There's not going to be much of a dance, right? Or if the partner says no, or if the partner just doesn't reply, there's not going to be much of a dance. So it's really important in a relationship for us to consider how we can respond well to the gratitude that's expressed. So if you're having your marriage meeting with your wife and she's expressing, you know, how much she appreciates what you've been doing, you know, that week. And you don't respond, you don't um, acknowledge, it's, it's almost as though you're not even there. That's not going to work very well, right? Um, and so my guess is that in that context, what really works in your relationship is to take it in, right? She's telling you these things because she believes them and she, she wants you to receive them. Sometimes we think about gratitude as, you know, well, I can't really acknowledge when somebody gives me a compliment or somebody says something, it's really not good form to take it in. Almost as though, you know, it's the last cookie on the plate and I really can't take it because then other people won't have the cookies. No, in relationships, if I'm complimenting Susie for something, I don't want her to say, well, I really can't accept that compliment because that would just be, uh, you know, unseemly. No, I want her to accept the compliment. I want her to enjoy it. I want her to luxuriate and the compliment. Well, this has been a great conversation, guys. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So, yeah, so they, they can go, Susie mentioned earlier, the website. Buildhappytogether.com. We put the word build in it because we feel like love is an action verb. You got to work on it and build it. So we have a lot of resources. We have a link to the strengths test we mentioned, um, articles and so forth, and some videos. And the book's available there, bookstores nationwide, Amazon. 
There's also more information on the website. Uh, one of the things that we is is important, we think, in terms of relationships is working at these skills, as we said. We like to talk about the relationship gym and the importance of going and, and working out. And, you know, if there's one thing that's better than going to the gym and working out, it's going to the gym and working out with others. And so we hope that this work that we've been doing on relationships, you know, one of the key reasons why we wanted to do it was to work on our relationship. Um, and we also uh, are excited about connecting with others who are interested in working on their relationships in similar ways and really creating a community of Aristotelian lovers who are wanting to support each other in, uh, in this endeavor uh, to become better people and to have uh, better relationships. So we have a pledge on there that people can take to work on practicing becoming an Aristotelian lover. We also have a Facebook um, Happy Together book page if people are interested in following us there. Well, fantastic. Well, Susie James, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. We really enjoyed talking with you today. Brett, it's really been fun. Thanks for your great questions. I, I'm guessing you might have a signature strength of love of learning too. Uh, and it's been really fun to, to talk <laughs> to you about these things. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> My guests today were James Powelski and Susan Pelegi Powelski. They're the authors of the book, Happy Together. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about their work at their website, buildhappytogether.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash happytogether, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. Got a lot of articles on relationships. So check out our relationship archives while you're there. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so at Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com, use code MANLINESS to get a month free of Stitcher Premium and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast. Once you do that, you can download the Stitcher app on iOS or Android. Again, stitcherpremium.com promo code manliness for a free month of stitcher premium and if you enjoyed the show you got something out of it i'd appreciate if you give us a review on itunes or stitcher it helps out a lot and if you've done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support and until next time this is brett mckay reminding you to not only listen to the amen podcast but put what you've heard into action mm-hmm.